If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anyone with a sense of history does indeed need to know about Edward III. That was Mark Ormrod on medieval kingship. Having worked on Francis Walsingham for a long time, I don't think I like him very much. And that was John Cooper on Elizabeth I's Principal Secretary. Hello and welcome to the first History Extra podcast of 2013. My name is Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. We've also recently launched Google Play and Kindle Fire editions. These two are currently available in the UK, but they will be rolled out to other countries soon. And if you're interested in military history, then you might well enjoy our new iPad app, The Second World War Story. It's an interactive guide to the greatest conflict in human history, packed with expert analysis, stunning images and video footage. You can find that at the App Store now. Just search for The Second World War Story. BBC History Magazine's publisher, Dave Musgrove, chaired an event last year at the York Festival of Ideas, where the historians Mark Ormrod and John Cooper discuss the nature of royal personality and power in medieval and Tudor times. Mark Ormrod is Professor of Medieval History at the University of York, and he recently published a biography of the 14th century English king, Edward III. John Cooper also teaches in the History Department at York and has written a book on Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth I's Principal Secretary. The two historians took these subjects as their examples. We recorded the lecture and we start off with an introduction from Mark Ormrod. So I suppose I am here to be Edward III. Um, It's something that I never really like um, associating myself with. I try to distance myself from my my subject. Um, But Edward III, who reigned for over 50 years in the middle of the 14th century, from 1327 to 1377, was undoubtedly one of the most successful kings of the Middle Ages, and perhaps a king whose profile has not been so high as those of other well-known kings of the period. Now, in investigating this subject of royal power, 
we need to reflect that medieval politics was in a very real way, a, a way that is actually quite difficult for us now to comprehend, about the exercise of personal power by the monarch. To use an old adage, but one that is very relevant here, kings ruled as well as reigned. So in investigating royal power, I suppose I ultimately think less about the rules of political engagement, what we might often rather grandiosely refer to as the constitution, the, the, the rules that, that set parameters around the exercise of power, and much more really about the potential of kingship in my period. It seems to me that still in the 14th century and indeed later, when fortuitous events coincided with a capable ruler, anything appeared to be possible. And that sense of the grand, that sense of the expansive, that sense of possibility is something that was very, very fully shared in by the subjects of these rulers. Edward III, who presided over an extraordinarily successful expansionist regime that imagined English rule across the British Isles and indeed much of Western Europe, was hailed at the apogee of his power around 1360 as, as one of his subjects put it, the greatest king of all the world. In the end, then, in investigating power, it seems to me that it was not the rules, but the personal ambition and vision of the monarch that actually determined the exercise of royal power in late medieval England. Now, John will have his little say about power before we proceed further. Right, well... My book is a rather different sort of book because, of course, it focuses on a royal minister rather than the ruler herself, a herself now. Walsingham, in case you haven't met him before, he's, uh, his public career begins as an ambassador to France. He witnesses the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. He has a perfectly miserable time trying to negotiate a French husband for Elizabeth I, since uh, neither Elizabeth uh, nor the Duke of Anjou actually want this match to go ahead. Um, he then returns to England and becomes a principal secretary to the Queen and a privy councillor. Uh, and then finally, he becomes a sort of intelligence chief or spy master in the 1580s, which is inevitably the, um, the focus of most of the interest on Francis Walsingham. Now, I think there are some points of contact between the world that Mark has just described and my own. Uh, two, two and a half centuries on, obviously, we still have government by monarchy. Um, there's no constitution to restrict the power of the monarch. In Elizabethan period, we are still, in theory, dealing with absolute monarchy. And Tudor England still has a nobility that conceives of itself very much in military terms. War remains a constant in the 16th century as it had done in the 14th. And all sorts of core institutions of government, like the law courts and the county uh, sheriffs and so on, are still there in the 16th century as they had been in the 14th, sometimes altered in significance. Parliament is the big example there, but comparable, I think, to their medieval predecessors. 
But there are two key differences, I think, um, that make the questions about power, which I've been asking in my book, quite different from the questions that Mark has been asking in his book on Edward III. And the first of those is because of the growth of the court and the royal council. Now, some of you um, may, like me, have been forced to do Geoffrey uh, Elton's Tudor Revolution in Government at A-level, or you may have seen uh, David Starkey on the television talking about the Tudors. Um, by Elizabeth's reign, the Privy Council has become a kind of permanent and bureaucratised feature of government. It's not yet a cabinet, um, but it couldn't be ignored. And that changed the balance of power between monarch and ministers. Um, and we have figures like um, Lord Burley and Francis Walsingham having a great deal of power in terms of setting the agenda for the Privy Council. Anybody who has ever had to uh, chair a committee meeting and has been able to set the agenda will agree with me that the person who sets the agenda is in a position of some power. <laughs> and the politics of intimacy, as Starkey has called it, really matters to all of this. It matters who had access to the monarch. And this is a quite distinctively Tudor story. Uh, Walsingham was in daily uh, contact with the Queen. Um, he was the Queen's man on the council and in the Commons, but he also represented the wishes of the council to the Queen. And then the second big difference between my world and Marx is the religious question. Now, it's fair to say that 14th century England wasn't without its religious controversies, but I think they were on a different kind of scale from Reformation-era England. Religion and politics were utterly interwoven by my period, and Walsingham was a convinced Protestant, and he carried that conviction into a very active foreign policy. At the same time, young English Catholics were going off to the continent to be ordained as priests on a secret mission to return to England and reclaim her for the one true faith. And foreign powers were interested in invading England on grounds of religious ideology. And finally, a handful of radical Catholics within England were prepared to support that foreign invasion by contemplating regicide, by contemplating the assassination of Queen Elizabeth I. And those are the deep differences between Mark's world and mine. There is also the random factor that the monarch happened to be a woman. Arguably, the theory of monarchy actually wasn't much changed in my period from Mark's period. But the reality was that political life worked very differently with a woman on the throne. And it's fair to say that Burley and Walsingham had what my students would call issues with being ruled by a woman. Okay. Okay, so I would like to ask some questions now about how we go about reconstructing the personalities of long-dead historical figures. It's terribly easy when you work on the Middle Ages to think, well, you're very safe because your subjects um, are uh, most emphatically on the other side of mortality and you haven't got to face them yourself. We do have responsibilities, however, as historians, I think, to try to get it right. Now, Edward III offers us some quite quick wins in this respect. He is, in fact, the first English king for which we have what we would call a genuine likeness. This rather peculiar picture that you have before you is what remains of Edward's funeral effigy kept at Westminster Abbey. 
it was the convention by the 14th century at royal funerals for a, um, a, a wood and plaster uh, mannequin, life-sized mannequin, representing the dead monarch to be set in robes of state on top of the coffin at the royal funeral with eyes open, okay, as though still alive. Now, most unusually, in Edward III's case, we know from documentary evidence that the face of the funeral effigy was in fact carved from a death mask taken from the king's visage uh, at the time that he died. And much has been made of, um, of the, the configuration of the mouth, um, where a lot of historians have convinced themselves that it proves that he died of a stroke. I leave that to those of you in the audience who like to investigate these matters. He's also the first king, in fact, to leave us examples of his own handwriting. And we have at least some of his greatest cultural enterprises, most particularly what survives of the medieval Windsor Castle is mostly the work carried out by Edward III there in the middle of the 14th century, what we sometimes refer to as his new Camelot of Windsor. Even so, I defy you to write a biography of Edward III based on that. I don't think that we can go very far from that kind of striking and rather ghoulish uh, image. It's quite striking, in fact, that in the 14th century, um, and this may be a comment on Edward's own sense of majesty, that very few of his contemporaries left what we might deem to be authentic pen portraits of the king. So most of the chronicle accounts of the 14th century commenting on the personality of the king actually are written by people who have no personal connection with him and who, who represent a stereotype of a great king rather than something that is really authentic. So, where do we go? Into the dusty archives, that's where we go. Now, the bulk of the evidence in my book and most of the material that I work on as a historian comes from great stashes of documents like this, existing literally in their hundreds of thousands for the 14th century in the National Archives in London, and this is a bundle that I brought up the last time that I was at the National Archives a few weeks ago. These are the records of government. They provide remarkable testimony to the scale and sophistication of English bureaucracy in the later Middle Ages. If you think that duplicate and triplicate is a modern phenomenon, go back to the 14th century. But precisely because authority and power stemmed from the king, these records provide us with unparalleled glimpses of things that Edward III actually did, said, and in some cases dreamed. So to give you just a few examples of tiny little discoveries in the archival record that seem to allow us to open up a world of historical imagination. Let me just give you a few tidbits about Edward's personal life and private pastimes that I discovered in delving into the record. So in 1336, the financial records of the royal household record how the king awoke from his sleep, 
scared by a nightmare brought on by the recent tragic death of his 20-year-old brother, the Earl of Cornwall, while on campaign in Scotland. In 1342, we have an extremely rare personal letter from the king to his beloved queen, Philippa of Hainaut, written while he was away fighting in Brittany. And he refers very touchingly in this letter, written significantly in French, to Philippa as his douce cœur, his sweetheart. In 1344, one of the most intriguing references I think I have turned up in my work, I encounter um, a reference to a new fishing rod purchased for the king. <laughs> we know ever such a lot about Edward's penchant for hunting with uh, horse and hound and shooting with bow and arrow. Now we know that he did fishing as well. 1352. A wonderful, spectacular tournament crest commissioned for the king to be worn on top of his helm, on top of his metal helm, uh, at, at a royal tournament. Described in the record as a crest of red velvet, embroidered with wild men and branches, and topped off with a gold leopard wearing a crown of gold and silver decorated with sapphires. Imagine keeping that on. From the 1350s onwards, we have extraordinarily evocative references to pairs of pages to whom the king quite clearly gave affectionate and punning names, men who were very, very intimate with the king indeed, and whom he addressed by nicknames, by affectionate nicknames. The first pair are called Verjuice and Vinegar, and the second pair, which I like particularly, Mustard and Garlic. <laughs> Finally, 1374, a very intriguing reference to a pearl-encrusted brooch, commissioned, I think, in all probability for the king's very controversial mistress, Alice Perez, with the inscriptions, Pensez de moi, think of me, and Sans départir, never apart. Well, so much for the personal tidbits. You can see how I think we can begin to build images, ideas about royal personality from those kinds of things. How did all of this translate into policy and power? Well, the answer lies, I think, for Edward III very emphatically in two interconnected themes that dominate the entire reign, war and the family. And I've tried to typify this uh, in this uh, contemporary, probably official depiction of the king and his eldest son, the Black Prince, the figure that we know as the Black Prince, at least from the 16th century, both decked in arms of war, with the king bestowing on his son the title of Prince of Aquitaine in 1362. Now, Edward III, as I'm sure everybody here knows, made war against his enemies. You name them, he made war on them. He triumphed over the Scots at Halidon Hill in 1333 and at Neville's Cross in 1346. And he and his son won the great victories against the French at Cressy in 1346 and at Poitiers in 1356. Now, we know, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, that these were moments in a longer history that would ultimately see Scotland doubtily resist English control 
and which gave France the ultimate triumph at the end of the Hundred Years' War in the 15th century. But this perspective was not that of Edward III or indeed of his people. For him, war was a policy of ruthless expansion, expansionism and what one famous historian called a joint stock enterprise, something from which all of his subjects were supposedly um, going to gain something. And above all, it was about the future of his dynasty. From the 1340s, Edward rolled out a grand plan which, had it come to fruition, would have placed his sons, his sons-in-law, and ultimately all of their descendants, as his deputy rulers in Ireland, Scotland, Flanders, Aquitaine, and Castile. His vision, in other words, was to unite much of Western Europe under the control of a single dynasty. Now, we know that this was a chimera, but it sustained a remarkably consensual and peaceful political regime within England for over 40 years, by far the longest period of domestic calm in the whole of the Middle Ages. We wage war abroad to have peace at home was an adage of the Middle Ages, but it was one to which Edward was very fully and enthusiastically signed up. Now, much of what Edward did, or tried to do, um, seems ill-judged and inappropriate by our modern liberal agenda. How can we really have sympathy with a warmongering king um, who apparently was so reckless in the use of the resources of his, of, of, of his country? Yet I think it's also worth remembering how much Edward also changed the face of monarchy in England changed it once and for all, providing a legacy that we all tend to take for granted today. And I want to point out to you some of the things that we owe to Edward III that are still part, in a sense, of the fabric of monarchy and public life in this country. Now, here is the Queen herself at the ceremonies of the Order of the Garter, held in April this year at Windsor Castle. Now, it was Edward III who created the Order of the Garter and who gave it its emblem and its motto. In spite of the, um, uh, the, the imagination of Tudor historians, the Garter has nothing to do with an item of ladies' underwear. The Garter, in its original conception, represents a miniature sword belt worn on the calf. This was a high fashion in the, in the mid, middle of the 14th century. And it therefore symbolises the martial values of Edward's court. Furthermore, the characteristic blue robes, which the Queen still wears, which all the members of the Order of the Garter still wear, rather than what we might expect, that is the conventional red of England, is a direct reference to the claim that Edward III laid through his mother to the throne of France in 1340. A claim which was not incidentally renounced until 1802, and which still, at least in this residual form, is with us today. Then finally, in this year of Jubilee, I want to leave you with another, perhaps more meaningful legacy from Edward III. No ruler before Edward 
so far as I'm aware, ever made any public use of anniversaries in his life as a focus of public celebration. But on his 50th birthday in 1362, and in the 50th year of his reign in 1376-7, Edward III set out deliberately to co-opt the, Judeo the Judeo-Christian idea of a 50-year cycle of commemoration and celebration, and to apply it for the first time to a secular ruler. Uh, the Tudor historians in the, in the audience will reflect, I know, a, a lot on the development of a kind of cult of monarchy in the 16th century when, as a result of the religious changes that John was referring to, um, uh, rulers, and particularly Elizabeth I, Gloriana, become kind of substitute iconic figures in a kind of national religion, monarchy becoming a means by which you can draw the whole uh, of, the, of the realm together. I want to point out to you that I think that process actually began with Edward III uh, 200 years earlier in the, in the 1300s. And the precedent for the recent very soggy flotilla on the Thames takes us, in fact, all the way back to 1377, when the Lords and Commons of Parliament and the people of London were called out to cheer on the King as he rode albeit the other way, along the Thames in triumph and glory. Anyone, I would argue then, with a sense of history, does indeed need to know about Edward III. Thank you very much. Hard act to follow. Um, and in fact, one of the difficulties of being a Tudorist... Uh, up against a medievalist, as it were, um, is that medievalists tend to do to Tudorists what Mark has just done to me, which is to steal my subject by saying there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Tudor cult of monarchy 250 years earlier. It all, all, all comes back to Edward III. Um, okay, well, uh, on to the Tudors anyway, and Francis Walsingham. Um, here we have the, uh, the cover of uh, my book, and if I can get that to work. Here we have a figure with whom you might be familiar. Uh, this is, in fact, not Francis Walsingham, of course, but Geoffrey Rush playing Francis Walsingham in that, um, frankly, rather awful film, um, Elizabeth, the Golden Age. Um, I, I, I've, I've watched it uh, a couple of times, and I can't say... I think Shakespeare in Love is much better, actually, as an evocation of the reign of, of, of Elizabeth. I mean, they do look extraordinarily like each other, don't they? That's the real Francis Walsingham. That's Geoffrey Rush. And, in fact, I... I had a very nasty moment, actually, when I was in the final stages of, of research for my book, and I had been eating Walsingham and drinking Walsingham, sleeping Francis Walsingham for as long as I could remember. And I was working at the British Library, and I came stumbling out into, into the light and sort of stood in that uh, rather brutal piazza outside the British Library. And a big red London bus went past with a picture of Francis Walsingham on it. And I thought, my God, I'm seeing things. And of course, it wasn't Francis Walsingham at all. It was Geoffrey Rush who was advertising advertising the film, but it gave me um, a frightful shock. Uh, anyway, here we have um, uh, Geoffrey Rush playing Walsingham to Kate Blanchett's um, Elizabeth I. Um, and I think, however 
ropey uh, this film might be in terms of its historical accuracy, it does make a very good job of recovering the sheer magnificence and splendour of this period, um, as also the religious conflict and I think the proximity um, of Walsingham to Elizabeth I. Walsingham was literally um, that close to Elizabeth a, a lot of the time. Uh, and as I said at the beginning of my talk, um, the politics of intimacy in this period really matter. The politics of access are terribly important, as David Starkey and others have, have taught us. Now, if I can sort of make you think again about that, that big pile of dusty documents that Mark showed you that he, he ordered up in the National Archives quite recently. Um, some of the mechanics of the work that Mark and I have done are actually very similar. Uh, we're both, I think it's fair to say, more archival than theoretical or postmodern historians. I mean, forgive me if I slander you here, but we're both actually, you know, created rather in the same image um, from a rather, rather sort of traditional historical background. In other words, our core instincts are um, to pore over vellum and paper documents in the National Archives and the British Library and other. Um, more exotic locations that they've turned up in, like, uh, for, for me, the um, Henry E. Huntington Library in San Marino, California, which is a much nicer place to go and research than the British Library, let me tell you. Um, now, for Walsingham, this presents a real problem. The records of state are there in abundance. I have more records with Walsingham's uh, name on them, more letters written by him, more memoranda addressed to him than I could possibly handle. It is more than a life's work to deal with all of those documents. But there's a tremendous paucity, a, a lack of records that tell you about his personality, about his personal life. And it's a rather interesting fact that at some point the English um, archive, and there was an English archive by the end of Elizabeth's reign. It's something like the modern notion of preserving documents had already begun by that stage. That archive was either weeded on grounds um, of space or raided on grounds of politics, whichever you care to believe. And an awful lot of documents about Francis Walsingham were thrown away. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these records probably um, were related to Walsingham Secret Service. And so um, one of my PhD students, who is in fact in this room, has spent the last three and a half years trying to reconstruct um, a lot of that story of, of Francis Walsingham's intelligence network and the role that it had in, um, in politics at the time. Um, but it's been very frustrating for me, in a sense, that I've had, to, I've had to go around the houses to try and reconstruct Walsingham's personality and his sort of political philosophy through his correspondence, through the, the, the kind of state records that do survive. As an Elizabethan historian, um, my work is, as well as that sort of medieval-style uh, archival presence, my, my work is also located in the context of the English Renaissance. Now, Renaissance is not an easy word to describe or to define in the abstract. Um, uh, and in fact, it's precisely the sort of word that I ask my MA students to, to define in one of their early seminars. They're, they're sitting a couple of rows back on the left-hand side here. So if anybody wants to know what Renaissance means, talk to them uh, rather, than, rather than me. I think you can recognise Renaissance culture when you see it in the form of cultural artefacts like paintings, um, literature, architecture, and of course, um, music. 
Now, you might think this isn't terribly promising territory for Francis Walsingham, who has a reputation, not undeservedly, of being a rather dour Puritan, um, that kind of English Calvinist who has a visceral fear and horror of Catholicism um, and really doesn't have a great deal of fun. Um, in fact, this wouldn't be entirely fair. Walsingham, when he's in exile in Queen Mary's reign, he doesn't spend all of his time um, discussing Calvinist theology um, with, with, with sort of hatchet-faced ministers in, in Basel, although he does spend some time doing that. There are indications that Walsingham had a taste for Renaissance culture. He goes off to Padua for a while. He invests in wine. He buys himself a clavichord. We know there's music in Walsingham's household. I mean, godly lute music, not lewd Catholic music, um, but there is music. And we also know that he was interested in the Renaissance art of gardening. Um, now, I don't think, having worked on Francis Walsingham for a long time, I don't think I like him very much, but I am a gardener, and my heart does slightly go out to him um, in terms of, of cultivating his garden. And, and this isn't a flippant thing to say, because for, for, for Francis Walsingham, cultivating a garden was a metaphor for cultivating the state. And if you see references to gardens and so on in Renaissance portraiture, this is what they're referring to. It's not simply leisure. It's actually a metaphor for, for, for statecraft. Anyway, um, the 16th century was the age of the portrait. And I have a lot more of that kind of portrait-based material um, than the sort of death mask uh, that, that Mark showed you for Edward III. And in the remaining time available to me, I'd like to talk you through just, just three uh, different, very different portraits with a Walsingham connection um, to make a case essentially for visual evidence alongside the very traditional um, records of state, the traditional manuscripts, traditional state papers that Mark and I um, base an awful lot of our lives um, studying. Um, and the first image is this one. Now, this is the image I, I didn't really know about, or rather had forgotten about, um, when I wrote my book. And um, it was alerted to me or, uh, um, by a lady um, living in Wales who, who had read my book and, and then wrote me a long series of emails um, about this image. Um, it's a very mysterious image and a not very well-known one. Um, it shows um, Elizabeth I receiving Dutch emissaries. In fact, for Dutch, probably read Deutsch. These are probably German rather than what we would um, understand as Dutch. And it's one of those really exciting images because it shows Elizabeth in the process of actually being queen. She is uh, receiving these ambassadors in her privy chamber. Um, and this figure standing behind her is, I'm fairly convinced, Francis Walsingham. Um, I think it looks like him. It's the same, same shape of face, same beard, uh, same ruff. And I think the killer piece of evidence is the locket that he's wearing around his neck. Um, and I think this is actually a real jewel. I think this is the same locket that appears, albeit very, very faintly, in the National Portrait Gallery principal portrait of Walsingham. So if you go to the NPG in London and go and look at the portrait of Francis Walsingham, there's this kind of smudgy smear that is actually a locket. It's a cameo portrait of Queen Elizabeth I. So he, he literally wore his allegiance to Elizabeth around his neck. And that is um, the same image that you see here. Um, in fact... Historians of Tudor decor, interior decor, and there are some, uh, have shown the main interest in this, um, in this image because it, it probably gives us a window into what a room at, I imagine Hampton Court or, or possibly Richmond or Greenwich, actually looked like in terms of the decoration on the walls. Um, but there's something very odd about this group portrait. Um, and that is 
this figure in black, this woman in black standing in the middle. Now, at some point, this image, by the way, is in, is in Germany. It's in Kassel in Germany. Um, and at some point, somebody has added some captions. I mean, somebody in, in, the, in the sort of early modern period, some captions in German that claim that that lady in black in the middle is the Queen of Scotland. This is the image that Hollywood would love to have ha really to have happened. This is Elizabeth I, apparently in the same room as Mary, Queen of Scots. Of course, this is hokum. This never happened. Uh, Elizabeth's courtiers, uh, Walsingham and Burley in particular, would never have allowed Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots, to meet. In fact, it seems that... This is a much more lowly person. It's probably a woman named Blanche Parry. This is not my research. This is this, this lady who wrote to me, um, who was one of the principal gentlewomen of Elizabeth's privy chamber. But in a sense, that makes the image just as interesting because it shows, uh, it, it shows women in a position of power, uh, literally located within, within the kind of court of power, uh, the court of Elizabeth I. And so it is, it's a very important uh, image in that regard, I think. Um, and those women at the court of Elizabeth seem to have taken a particular role in Elizabeth's uh, long and, of course, ultimately fruitless marriage negotiations, which Walsingham was involved in several times over. Um, he's involved in it the first time it's the Duke of Anjou. He's involved in it the second time it's the Duke of Anjou. In other words, the first Duke of Anjou's younger brother. Um, and he's involved in various other marriage negotiations as well. One of the things I've had to grapple with in my research for my book is what Walsingham thought about the idea of the Queen marrying. Uh, and on the plus side, I suppose, the Queen needs to marry because the succession needs to be secured. But on the negative side, Walsingham does not want a French Catholic king co-ruling over England because that looks like a return to Queen Mary's reign. So actually sort of observing the inner struggle that Walsingham has through his correspondence, through the diplomatic uh, material he sends back from France is one of the ways I've tried to access Walsingham's personality, which, as I say, is, is otherwise sort of not terribly easy to access because he doesn't write a diary um, and a lot of his personal records are lost to us. The second image is this one, and forgive me those of my students in the room who've, who've, who've heard me banging on about this one before. I am excited about this image because it's the only thing I know that Walsingham actually owned. This is a very rare portrait in the sense that its provenance can be, can be traced back to Walsingham himself because, although you can't see it in this image, around the frame is an inscription in Latin that explains that this image, this, this portrait, was given by Queen Elizabeth uh, to Francis Walsingham. That said, there's a lot of mystery about this image. I mean, we can more or less work out what's going on here. It's very tempted to go into teaching mode and invite responses from the audience here. Tell me what's happening in this image, but that, that's not really going to work in, in, in this forum. Clearly, this is an artificially constructed image. Again, it shows Henry VIII uh, centre stage. We have um, Elizabeth at the front. Um, you can see sort of just behind Elizabeth's right shoulder a little figure of King Edward VI kneeling um, by his father's side. Elizabeth is holding the hand of a goddess um, who is actually the goddess of peace. Um, there's a, um, a rather ill-dressed lady coming in behind the goddess of peace, um, carrying a, a big bunch of flowers and fruit, who the classicists amongst you will recognise as Ceres, goddess of plenty. Um, on the other side of the image, on the, on the left-hand side, the sinister side, if you like, we have, of course, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, and Philip of Spain. 
uh, and the image of Mars, god of war, with a big lance, looking, I think, for all the world, he's about to clonk Philip of Spain on the head um, with this lance. Um, now, why would the Queen be presenting an image like this to Francis Walsingham? We presume it must have been hung in his house. Um, the iconography of this image, beyond what I've already told you, I think is deeply obscure. And I think historians sort of buoyed up with enthusiasm of talking to colleagues in history of art think that they can interpret these images. But when we don't have a precise date, and we don't really have an artist, it's possibly Lucas de Heer, who's a, a Protestant um, artist in, in sort of retreat from the Continental Counter-Reformation, unless we have a precise date for this image, which we don't have, it's very difficult to work out what it actually means. What political message is this trying to convey? Um, I struggled, I must say, with the sheer difficulty of recovering the precise context in which images such as this one were understood. Um, I think it is at one level propaganda. I wrote my first book on Tudor propaganda and I've never lost that interest in propaganda. But I think once you get beyond that, um, on the surface of it, this is a, a celebration of peace, obviously. This is Elizabeth saying, um, that I have succeeded in bringing peace where my sister brought war. And at this point, of course, in the 1570s, assuming that this is when this image can be dated, this is actually true. This might be a direct reference to um, a rather dull treaty, the Treaty of Blois, that Francis Walsingham has just spent a lot of time negotiating with the French monarchy, actually putting to an end the endemic wars with France, with which Mark and Edward III were, uh, and, and other members of Edward III's dynasty were intimately uh, familiar in the, in the 14th century. So that, that, that's game over for the English uh, war with France as a result of this treaty. So maybe this is Elizabeth donating this portrait to Francis Walsingham as an, as a, as a sort of a, uh, an image of gratitude that, that Walsingham has brought peace to England. But... Of course, Francis Walsingham has grave doubts about Elizabeth I's policy of peace. Now, if Edward III and Francis Walsingham were to meet in paradise, they would have a great deal to talk about, I think, in terms of the importance of war and taking war to the enemy uh, and, and war as an instrument of defence. And this is, of course, the line that Walsingham inexorably uh, tries to push on the Queen. Walsingham wants the Queen to go to war. Elizabeth does not want to go to war. And they have at each other for years and years and years over this policy. And that means that this image could be very interesting indeed. It could be, although it's a gift to Francis Walsingham, it's a mark of Walsingham's status, it could be a warning to Walsingham to back off that his policy of warfare is not to be entertained at court anymore. Now, if that is the meaning of this image, then Walsingham takes absolutely no notice and continues to harangue and hector Queen Elizabeth I um, towards a war policy until finally the Earl of Leicester, who has a rather more intimate relationship with Elizabeth I than Francis Walsingham does, persuades her um, to go to war in, in the mid-1580s. But that is very, very late in the day. And of course, in a sense, it's... Our invasion armadas have almost begun to assemble um, by that point. Um, finally, on to my third image. Now, this is a very different kind of portrait, more of a cartoon than a portrait, and it creates a record of an event. Now, this is the execution of Mary Queen of Scots, um, 
which happened at Fotheringhay Castle in 1587. Um, and this is a, it's one of those curious images which, when, which three things are happening at once. We actually see um, Mary three times. We see her coming in sort of stage left. Um, we see her uh, right in the middle of this image with her gentlewomen helping her to disrobe. And you can just imagine the gasps as, uh, because Mary was a great showwoman and um, of course she was wearing a fabulous scarlet outfit for the occasion of her own execution, really sort of creating herself as, as, as a martyr, even as she was being executed. And then there's this sort of um, gruesomely uh, brutal uh, and, and pared down image of the axe man with the axe hovering above Mary's head. Um, now I show you this image, which is in the papers of, of Robert Beale, who was Walsingham's um, chief deputy and in fact his brother-in-law as well, um, really because it illustrates the end of Walsingham's uh, career-long campaign to get Mary Queen of Scots executed. Uh, quite a lot of my book is, is about plots and conspiracies. Uh, the Ridolfi plot, the, the, the Throckmorton plot, the Babington plot, and one of the things I've had to try and do is engage in my book with, with the extent to which these were real plots or whether they were fabricated by Francis Walsingham in order to keep himself in power and to keep Catholics in subjection. And uh, there are arguments on both sides. Um, if you want me to, I'm happy to answer questions about that, or you can just go and buy the book and read about it for yourself. But the other reason I wanted to show you this image is that this is quite the most humbling document I have ever held. I literally held my breath to see whether the... the um, elves in the manuscript room of the British Library who bring you material like this would actually let me handle it at all. And it's one of those documents which is, of course is so rare that they, they do require you to put on white gloves and sit on a separate table and um, uh, basically sort of, you know, put a CCTV, CCTV camera on you and just, just you know, wait to see if you're going to sneeze or something and ruin it forever. Um, but I, <laughs> I mean, it sounds cliched, but I really did feel as if I was as holding um, history in my hands. And I think in this sort of image, um, and life, Walsingham's, as I say, career-long campaign to have Mary Queen of Scots executed, you can finally see Walsingham's personality. You can trace his determination. You can trace his sense of anger, his visceral loathing of this woman who had the, the temerity to come into his mistress's dominions and to organise plots against the Queen. And I think Walsingham is in absolutely no doubt in his own head that Mary Queen of Scots is complicit in the plots that seek to put her on the throne and to depose Queen Elizabeth. There's also an element of questioning in his own mind, I think, that you can see in his correspondence about how God could allow such a devilish woman as Mary Queen of Scots to live. And his conclusion that God allowed Mary, Queen of Scots, to live in order to bring God's people, in other words, his pro uh, God's Protestant people, out of their current state of sin. Walsingham envisages everything in sort of, uh, uh, well, almost apocalyptic terms. Um, religion is never very far uh, from his, the, the forefront of his mind. But Walsingham, I think, finally, he has a clean conscience. He's often cast as a sort of Machiavellian figure. That's certainly what um, the Shekhar Kapoor films, you know, make him out. They make all sorts of 
fascinating but utterly unprovable uh, claims about, uh, about Francis Walsingham. He invented all these plots himself, that he was a backstabbing um, homosexual, that all, you know, all sorts of fascinating stuff went into those films that actually you, know, you can't trace in the archives at all. What you think you can trace is that Walsingham ruined uh, his family finances, he ruined his own health in doing what he believed to be necessary and what he believed to be right, which is to protect his queen from harm. Now, Elizabeth may not have liked him very much. I don't like him very much, but Elizabeth ultimately does owe her life to Francis Walsingham, I think. And without Francis Walsingham and his work, I think it might just have been Queen Elizabeth's head on the block in the previous image, and Mary Queen of Scots's face in an image like this one. Thank you. So that was Mark Ormrod and John Cooper, both of York University. Mark Ormrod's Edward III is published by Yale University Press, while The Queen's Agent, Francis Walsingham at the Court of Elizabeth I by John Cooper, is published by Faber and Faber. Now you can read an article by Mark Ormrod on Edward in the November 2011 issue of BBC History magazine, and a piece by John Cooper on Walsingham in the October 2011 issue. You can get hold of both these issues from our back issues department by calling the UK number 0844 844 Well, that's about all for this week's episode. Why not tell us what you thought of it by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at historyextra, or on Facebook forward slash historyextra. Next week, we'll be talking about the Anglo-Saxons and the dangers of life in Tudor England. Do join us for that. And just before we go, I'd like to thank our producer, Dave Gibson, for over four years of sterling work behind the mixing desk as he heads off to Pastures New. He's produced this podcast almost since it began and has worked tirelessly to improve the audio quality of our output. We wish him all the best. And I'm also pleased to welcome on board our new producer, Jack Fletcher, who will be ensuring we stay on track in the months and years to come. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>